is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Good day, good day. Welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I am delighted to be here with you today. I'm Dr. Carla Manning, and I am the hostess of this show, The Equity Experience. Where on this podcast, we have conversations about race, diversity, equity, and education. So welcome to today's show. On today's show, I'm going to share with you a blog. Well, not necessarily a blog per se, but this information comes from the Great Lakes Equity Center. And the title of it is 24 Examples of Systemic Inequities Experienced by Students of Color in the U.S. Okay. So this is a compilation of facts and statistics and research that censors the experiences of students of color, BIPOC students, in terms of how they experience schooling in America at the K-12 level, and then also at the higher ed level. So of course, the link to this podcast is also included, so you can access this as well. So in this podcast, I'm going to read in verbatim these 24 examples of systemic inequities. And then I also want to say systemic racism because of the fact that these experiences were by students of color. I'm going to read these in verbatim. I'm not going to read the sources in which the particular research is coming from. But if you want to know the sources, when you look at the document, every number has the citations and the sources behind it. Okay, let's just go ahead and get into this. 24 examples of systemic inequities experienced by students of color and students from under-resourced communities in the U.S. schools. This was published in 2020 by the Great Lakes Equity Center. So salute to you guys at the Great Lakes Equity Center for compiling this research and data. I'm so happy that you all did this, and I'm so happy to share this information on my podcast. So let's go ahead and get into it. Number one, schools serving more students of color are less likely to offer advanced courses and talented and gifted programs than schools serving mostly white populations. Additionally, students of color are less likely than their white peers to be enrolled in those courses and programs within schools that have those offerings. Number two, preschool teachers are more likely to look for signs of challenging behavior of young Black children, especially young Black boys, than young white boys. Again, for two, preschool teachers are more likely to look for signs of challenging behavior of young Black children, especially young Black boys than young white boys. So I'll read all each of these twice just as well. Number three, and this comes from the U.S. Department of Ed, Black children are disproportionately likely to be suspended from preschool than their white peers. Again, for number three, Black children are disproportionately likely to be suspended from preschool than their white peers. Number four, Black students with high math performance in fifth grade are unlikely to be placed in algebra in eighth grade. Number four, again, Black students with high math performance in fifth grade are unlikely to be placed in algebra in eighth grade. Number five, students of color in schools located in disinvested communities are less likely to receive coursework targeted at grade appropriate standards reflect higher level cognitive demand and are meaningfully engaging and appropriate. Again, for number five, students of color in schools located in disinvested communities 
are less likely to receive coursework targeted at grade appropriate standards, reflecting higher level cognitive demand and meaningfully engaging and relevant. So they're less likely to receive that type of academic experience. Number six, Black and Latinx students are provided less rigorous feedback about their work from classroom teachers than white students. Again, for six, Black and Latinx students are provided less rigorous feedback about their work from classroom teachers than white students. Number seven, schools serving mostly students of color are more likely to be taught by out-of-field and novice teachers. This is extremely true. Again, for number seven, schools serving mostly students of color are more likely to be taught by out-of-field and novice teachers. Number eight, the provision of a stable teacher workforce is less likely to occur in schools with the highest enrollment of students of color. Number eight, again, the provision of a stable teacher workforce is less likely to occur in schools with the highest enrollment of students of color. Number nine, schools serving mostly students of color have lower quality or fewer resources than schools serving largely white populations, even within the same district. And that comes from the U.S. Department of Ed in 2016. Again, for number nine, schools serving mostly students of color have lower quality or fewer resources than schools serving largely white populations even within the same district. Number 10, we're talking about curriculum. I like this one. Number 10, most U.S. history textbooks offer a romanticized view of the Europeans' experience in the U.S., whereas most of the experiences of Native Americans and or Africans are either misrepresented or underrepresented. Again, for number 10, most U.S. history textbooks offer a romanticized view of the Europeans' experience in the U.S., whereas most of the experiences of Native Americans and or Africans are either misrepresented or underrepresented. Number 11, research has also shown that additional academic domains, such as the natural sciences and English, also promote a Eurocentric ideological focus. Number 11, again, Research has also shown that additional academic domains, such as the natural sciences and English, also promote a Eurocentric ideological focus. Number 12, students of color are more likely to attend school where more than 50% of teachers were absent for more than 10 days. Again, for number 12, students of color are more likely to attend school where more than 50% of teachers were absent for more than 10 days. Number 13, students of color are more likely to attend a school with the SRO, a school resource officer, but not a school counselor than white students. Again, for number 13, students of color are more likely to attend a school with an SRO, but not a school counselor than white students. Number 14, students of color who identify as LGBTQ experience higher frequencies of victimization than white LGBTQ students. Again, for 14, students of color who identify as LGBTQ experienced higher frequencies of victimization than white LGBTQ students. Number 15, although black students are more likely to be disciplined for harassment or bullying in schools than their white peers, black students are disproportionately likely to be victims of harassment or bullying 
in school on the basis of their race, sex, or disability than their white peers. Again, for 15, although Black students are more likely to be disciplined for harassment or bullying in schools than their white peers, Black students are disproportionately likely to be victims of harassment or bullying in school on the basis of their race, sex, or disability than their white peers. Number 17, Muslim high school students who experience greater frequency and severity of hassles at school report higher levels of psychological stress. Again, for 17, Muslim high school students who experience greater frequency and severity of hassles at school report higher levels of psychological stress. Number 18, predominantly white and middle-class students enrolled in private and suburban public high schools are being awarded higher grades, critical in competition for college admission, more than their urban public school counterparts with no less talent or potential. Hmm. I'll read that one again for 18. Predominantly white and middle-class students enrolled in private and suburban public high schools are being awarded higher grades, critical in the competition for college admission, more than their urban public school counterparts with no less talent or potential. Number 19, college and university students of color are less likely to have access to and participate in high-impact activities such as research opportunities with faculty, study abroad, et cetera, than their white peers. Again, for 19, college and university students of color are less likely to have access to and participate in high-impact activities, such as research opportunities with faculty, study abroad, et cetera, than their white peers. Number 20, college and university students of color are more likely to endure stress and anxiety-producing experiences brought on by routine microaggressions and cultural appropriation under the guise of free speech or for the edification of other students than their white peers. I'll read number 20 again. College and university students of color are more likely to endure stress and anxiety-producing experiences brought on by routine microaggressions and cultural appropriation under the guise of free speech or for the edification of other students than their white peers. Number 21, students of color on college campuses report being profiled by police officers off campus. Black college students are often stopped by officers for very minor issues, and there has been a record of safety officers unnecessarily criminalizing small infractions or stepping outside of their authority when they approach Black college students. Again, for 21, students of color on college campuses report being profiled by police officers off campus. Black college students are often stopped by officers for very minor issues, and there has been a record of safety officers unnecessarily criminalizing small infractions or stepping outside of their authority when they approach Black college students. 22, according to a 2013 study for the Association of Higher Education, focus groups with grad students of color revealed that students of color often felt excluded from the larger student population at a university. They reported that their white peers often did not agree to share information with them, assuming that they were undeserving of the place at the university and that students of color were trying to quote unquote piggyback off of their work. Hmm. Number 23, a 2014 study conducted by researchers at New York University Columbia University and the University of Pennsylvania 
found that when students contacted professors for mentorship, faculty were significantly more responsive to white men than women and people of color, particularly in private universities and higher paying disciplines. I'll read that one again. A 2014 study conducted by researchers at NYU Columbia and the University of Penn found that when students contacted professors for mentorship, faculty were significantly more responsive to white men than women and people of color, particularly in private universities and higher paying disciplines. And then last, number 24, due to the dearth of professors of color at many universities, Students of color say their point of view is not represented when, for example, Western culture is considered the default standard by which all literature, architecture, film, and art is judged. Again, for 24, due to the dearth of professors of color at many universities, students of color say their point of view is not represented when, for example, Western culture is considered the default standard by which all literature, architecture, film, and art is judged. All right. So these are some powerful, powerful examples of data and research and information from studies that were done that sought to examine how students of color experience and perceive their educational settings. All of these were very powerful. Some stood out, and I wish to go back and sort of add in my a deeper analysis that I have. I want to go back and look at number 10. Most U.S. history textbooks offer a romanticized view of the Europeans' experience. This particular research statement or data statement has been known, I would say, really since the early 1900s, right? Du Bois started to talk about how Blackness and African history was represented. But really, after W.E.B. Du Bois and during the time W.E.B. Du Bois was doing that research, also, Carter G. Woodson came into the scene and really began to be more vocal about the presence of African history and African-American history within textbooks. And of course, that's what kicked off Negro History Week and then eventually Negro History Month and Black History Month in the 1920s and 30s. And then eventually in the 60s, it became more of a topic of conversation for Black studies to be courses and departments within universities. So for number 10, this is a longstanding inequity that has been in effect, particularly as it relates to curriculum. And I would say even in 2022, unfortunately, we are continuing to see these debates and these debacles, even much so now, because a lot of school boards are pushing back on a type of knowledge that is represented within textbooks and curriculum. So this is a very powerful inequity that we've experienced, and a lot needs to be said and done with this. So I want to offer this as a way for us to think about the fact that, particularly when we're talking about history, that, and I just uh, did a presentation about this, the debate is not just about history being present or not. It's also about the debate of truth and the debate of knowledge. These conversations around what sort of history is being present in textbooks or what sort of history is absent is also about speaking to issues of truth and knowledge and whose truth and whose knowledge should be taught at the K-12 level and then whose truth and whose knowledge should be excluded and marginalized. 
So what is needed, I would say, is particularly when we're talking about the histories of people of color, the histories of indigenous people, the histories of black people, the histories of Latino people. One of my suggestions is for curriculum writers and educators and researchers within various racial cultural groups to begin developing our own curriculum, right? Our own textbooks that can then be used and circulated within schools. Now, you know, of course, there's a whole process with that. There's a whole political agenda behind the publishing of textbooks and the publication of textbooks in schools. So that is not an easy thing to do because there is a lot more that's working behind the scenes. But that is one recommendation that I can think of. And that's very similar to what Black Education Freedom Movement was about in the 1960s and 70s, when you had groups of people that were becoming frustrated with the kind of education that their kids had access to. So people just started forming their own freedom schools and community schools and liberation schools and things of that sort, which still continue to exist to this day. Even homeschooling, right? Afrocentric and African-centered Montessori schooling. These are all examples of Black folks working in different social spaces who are convening and organizing their own knowledge and their own resources and assets and skills and talents to develop their own curriculum and teach the curriculum to the babies the way that sees fit with their cultural, well, I should also say our, with our cultural values and norms. And so for number 10, the fact that textbooks are offering a romanticized view of the Europeans' experience, this is also problematic because this romanticized view continues to uphold this false belief that whites are superior to other people of color. Because as long as the presentation of how Europeans slash white Americans, as long as that presentation of them is depicted in a certain way, which, okay, like they're saying, a romanticized view. So, you know, positioning them as the heroes, positioning them as the saviors, positioning whites as you know, these omnipotent leaders, when white people are people, <laughs> they are not superior to any other group of people simply because of the color of their skin. But when certain truths and depictions are represented within textbooks in a false way, that then leads to that stereotypical thought of white superiority or white supremacy, which is totally false. And really, I despise using those terms anyway, and I need to do another podcast breaking down why we should not use terms such as white superiority and white supremacy, even when we are trying to do away with that, because that's the whole thing. Okay, I'm going to digress from number 10, but thank you for listening. I want to come back to number 20. I thought number 20 was powerful. Let me read this one again. College and university students of color are more likely to endure stress and anxiety producing experiences brought on by routine microaggressions and cultural appropriation under the guise of free speech or for the edification of other students. Unfortunately, these experiences happen and they don't have to happen. They don't need to happen. And they happen because primarily white students, number one, they think it's funny and entertainment. Number two, they don't think anything is wrong with it. Or number three, as this statistics is stating, that they think it's okay because it's free speech and they use the free speech principle as an excuse to justify their actions. The thing that I often think about, or one of the things that I think about is how does the university respond in a way that holds white students accountable for their behaviors? 
So I think about this a lot. And I also think about number 20, when we talk about how students of color experience their schooling and how and why students of color may not want to stay at predominantly white institutions and why within the last 10 to 15 years, you've had an increase of student enrollment at historically black colleges and universities, as well as Hispanic serving institutions at HSIs, because you have many students of color who are not going along with this anymore. They don't want to have to deal with the struggles of maintaining a high academic standard for themselves while simultaneously navigating these racist and culturally inappropriate environments. You know, why should students of color have to experience this and endure this just to receive a degree? You know, it's not worth it. So I'm glad that number 20 is listed and the authors who wrote it, shout outs to you guys, Dave Stovall and Ebony McGee, because that's a citation for number 20. So yes. How can we move forward? How can we move forward with the knowledge of these 24 examples of systemic inequities? Number one, I would definitely say is that awareness, that authentic awareness needs to be front and center. And there has to be an acknowledgement of wrongdoing by uh, particular individuals and institutions who uphold these sorts of experience, uh, not experiences, but there has to be an acknowledgement and awareness by institutions that allow these types of cultures to exist, that allow these toxic cultures to exist. So the first thing I would say is institutions have to begin being more real with themselves around how students of color experience various inequities within an institution, whether that is a university, whether that's a district, a school or a classroom or an organization. And one of the ways to facilitate that awareness and that acknowledgement is to conduct an equity audit. And so that is the first recommendation that I would offer is that within districts or institutions, There needs to be a continued evaluation or analysis plan of how the culture and climate is perceived by students. Alongside a culture and climate audit, I would also say curriculum audits are very much necessary to help districts and institutions further diversity, equity, and inclusion. These curriculum audits could include textbook analyses, And within those textbook analyses, there can be different content analyses done. Within that curriculum audit, there can also be a standards analysis to examine how various state standards are in compliance or lacking compliance with various social justice concepts or diversity, equity, and inclusion concepts. So an equity audit is very important. Also, alongside with the equity audit, I would also say that it's not enough to just examine or analyze the disparities. There also needs to be an analysis of the root causes of these disparities. So there needs to be an understanding of why certain disparities are existing, right? It's not enough just to say that talented and gifted programs favor white students more so than they favor students of color, right? And that's pretty much a known fact at this point. This is a known statistic that is a national phenomenon. But say that this is also the case for a particular school, I would challenge that school to go deeper with that statement. So don't just accept the fact that your talented and gifted programs 
have a higher percentage of white students enrolled than black students or students of color enrolled. Don't just leave it there. Let's find out why that is the case. What are the root causes of these racial disparities? Is it because of bias within referrals? Teachers not referring students, students of color to talented and gifted because of perceptions of human intelligence, right? People may perceive students of color to lack intelligence simply because of the color of their skin. That's an example of bias and placement referral as it relates to talented and gifted. Are there lower percentages of students of color and talented and gifted because once students of color enroll in certain programs, then they may leave or drop out because they don't feel included or they don't feel that they belong within certain classrooms. Maybe they are tired of being the one and only black person within an AP chemistry or AP honors class. So let's figure out the root causes of these racial disparities, right? All 24 examples that I just listed here, these are all examples of various disparities and examples of disproportionalities. With this equity audit, I would encourage us to use the equity audit as an opportunity to understand the root causes of these disparities as they are contextual to your school or district, okay? A second recommendation that I would offer to address these 24 examples of systemic inequities is that very specific and targeted training is needed for teachers, particularly around bias, implicit bias and racial bias. And I would say to not just provide implicit bias training, but to provide implicit bias training as it is specific to a targeted issue. So going back to the example that I just used about the talented and gifted, I would suggest to begin having conversations with teachers around how to address and remediate bias as it relates to different placements, special education placements, AP and honors placements, talented and gifted placements. What does that bias look like? And how can teachers learn to be more cognizant of that bias when they are making these referrals? Okay. Even having targeted implicit bias training as it relates to referring students for some sort of discipline or accountability infraction, right? When I was a teacher, like, you know, if I had to write up a student, I had the decision to also say what would happen to that student as a result of the write-up. So I could just write up the student and just say, I'm writing up this student. I want to document, you know, the fact that I had some issues and challenges. So what I could do is I could just let it go. I could recommend that the student receives a detention, or I could recommend a student receives an in-day, you know, maybe a one-day in-school suspension or a three-day in-school suspension or even an out-of-school suspension. So I had that ability and authority as a teacher to make that final call. But I oftentimes would not recommend for that student to be suspended because I knew the ramifications of that. And because I just had that sort of awareness that a suspension is not always the best thing to do. And a lot of times it's just not. But do other teachers think like that? And so that's an example of having this implicit bias training or racial bias training that's very targeted to address specific issues where bias is at play on behalf of teachers. So we have to get very targeted with these trainings. You know, it's okay to have sort of these blanket trainings, right? Like I said, implicit bias, 
you know, addressing implicit bias and moving implicit bias. That's sort of a general sort of blanket, vague training. Let's think about having these conversations in ways that are more targeted and more specific to particular issues and challenges as they relate to inequities and inequalities. And then lastly, I would say that very specific policies are needed to disrupt these inequities, very specific policies. And the development of these policies also require that the leaders of an institution or a district take these inequities seriously. You know, this information needs to be digested in a way that represents the reality of how people experience an environment. You know, this is a part of this inclusion that we talk about. See, within DEI, we often talk about the diversity aspect. We often talk about the equity aspect, but we always often not as present is the inclusion aspect. And see, the inclusion aspect is all about how people feel. It's about how people feel, the extent to which people feel that they belong or don't belong within an environment. And I always say that a district can do a great job with affirming its diversity. A district can do a great job with removing inequities, but they may not do a good job with promoting inclusion. And so one does not necessarily replace the other. And see, again, going back to these systemic inequities, these inequities are very much related to the extent to which students of color feel included or feel that they belong and the extent to which they don't feel included or feel that they do not belong. So these actual factuals, as I like to say, these actual factuals that I just described here need to be taken seriously by principals, by superintendents, by provosts of universities, presidents of universities, chancellors, et cetera, et cetera. This information needs to be taken seriously while at the same time developing policies that are designed to disrupt these inequities. And that begins with having very open and honest conversations with each other on a personal level and within a professional level. So again, I'd like to thank you all for listening to this podcast. I'm sure that some of the information that I shared is known to some of you as listeners. And then for some of this information, it may not have been known. So hopefully today's podcast was informative and educational. But as always, my hope is that this information inspires you and inspires me and continues to inspire me to take action, right? To take action. These inequities require action. Every single one of them requires that we do something about it. So that is my hope. That is my challenge for you as the listener for this podcast. One of these days, I'm going to have a live podcast to recognize all of you as my faithful listeners and supporters so that one day we can have an opportunity to engage virtually in a live format. So thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope that this information has been helpful. Again, thank you to the Great Lakes Equity Center for compiling this list. And I also want to give a shout out to my podcast editor, Mr. Da Vinci, for always being faithful. So thank you for my podcast team for helping to produce this podcast. Again, thank you to my listeners of the Equity Experience Podcast. I hope this information has been helpful. Until next time, take care of yourselves, love yourselves, be well and be blessed. Bye-bye.